Okay. Have to resort to the bell. But you guys can pick this up at the end of service. You know, there is never enough time to truly fellowship with each other and, and uh, find out how, how things are going with people uh, in a service. Uh, but there is during the week. Don't forget all the time we have during the week to be able to connect, to reach out, whether it's electronically, whether it's a phone call, whether it's in person, whether it's a card or a note. You know, we all, we all are blessed when we recognize that somebody has been praying for us or caring about us and uh, we all need that. So don't make this the moment in time that you look to be able to connect with everybody. Use it, but make time the rest of the time. Um, as Jeremy was talking about what, what we do as a church, we do. We do a lot of things. Uh, we eventually will get all the flags up because there are about 40 flags that will be in the foyer that as you look, as you walk in, these are the places that your money goes to and support. You, you have world impact. But having world impact doesn't get us off the hook of having local impact. So we, we do something here in Rome. Uh, we do things in New York State. We do things in America. We do things all over the world. But as a, a congregation, we do this. But we also need to recognize we have a personal responsibility. Every one of us is an ambassador for Christ. And everywhere we go, there are people that are hurting. Um, there, there's a shirt that I saw that said, be kind. You don't know the battle that someone else is going through. And it's true. It's absolutely true. Because everybody's in a battle. Whether you're saved or unsaved, whether you know the Lord or you don't know the Lord, the enemy is tearing it up. But God wants to build it up. And you know how God builds? He builds through you. He builds through me. We are his hands and his feet. And so he, he wants us to be attentive to him as we abide with him. We're always aware and connected to him, available to him to interrupt our schedule, our plans, our, our, uh, what we're, we're intending to do. And take a moment that God has for us to impact a life. It may be the only time we have that opportunity, but uh, we need to realize the opportunities are everywhere, and uh, God is, is truly impacting and imparting to the church so the church will impact and impart to the world that God so loves that he gave his son. Amen? Well, thank you for coming this morning. Thank you for being here. Uh, I've got a couple of questions before we even get started uh, has anybody here ever been parachuted? You have. You have. Anybody else? So this is a foreign thing to almost all of us. Uh, I, I, Debbie and I, when we were dating, we would talk about things that, that we wanted to do. And one of the things she said was, I want to parachute. I thought, what? It's, parachuting is like golf to me. Now, some of you are going to get really upset about this because you love golf. But parachuting, why would you jump out of a very good plane? <laughs> golf, why would you hit a ball away from you and try and find it? And that's what my golf was. I didn't know where it was going. Only God knew where it was going. But you know, it was just an exercise in frustration. But parachuting, I, 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 I said to Debbie, why? She said, because it's thrilling. I said, you've never done it. How do you know it's thrilling? Don't you think to jump out of a plane would be thrilling? I said, no, terrifying is better for me. <laughs> but but um, this week as I was praying and preparing for this message, the Lord gave me an analogy of parachuting and some of our relationships with God. Because what is, what is the purpose of the parachute when you jump out of the plane? Exactly. Save your life. You've gotten into a situation that you're definitely over your head in. You can't do anything about. I mean, if we flap our arms, it's still not going to help, right? 
And we want to make a safe landing. We don't want to get broken or die. And a lot of us deal with God in our relationship like a parachute. Somehow we get into a situation that is terrifying or life-threatening or out of our control and we're not able to do anything and all of a sudden we pull the ripcord and look to God to give us a safe landing. Now, if that's, that's the relationship we have with God, he's not going to make us change. We can continue that way, but I want you to know it's not the way God intended. And, and so when Debbie and I were talking about parachuting and she said that, she said, what do, what do you want to do? I said, well, I want to scuba dive. She said, scuba dive? I would never want to do that. Isn't it great that opposites attract? <laughs> And, and I said, no, no, it's great because I can be in an environment that is hostile to me, but I can exist there because I'm carrying with me what will sustain me. She said, I still wouldn't do it. I said, but let's, let's go deeper into the logic. If you jump out of the plane and the parachute doesn't work, you're toast, right? Yeah. I said, if I'm scuba diving and the air runs out, I can make it to the surface. So mine's safer. She said, no, it's not. <laughs> but we can also compare scuba diving to our relationship with God. You can't get into the water and under the water for any length of time without having something that sustains you. You have an air hose. You have a source of life. And that's what God wants. God wants us to be able to be in the most hostile of environments and be able to not just survive, but thrive. And that's because we have a constant flow of God in our lives. And this is what we've been learning about. We've been learning about abiding, where God is that absolute air hose, not a parachute. We rip off and pull the cord and we try and land safely because we got in over our head. We got into a situation we couldn't deal with. But we know going in that everything we face could be beyond our ability, but not God's. God's ability is limitless. God's wisdom is limitless. God's power is limitless. And God's love is limitless. God is always there with us, whether we acknowledge him or not. And we've been looking at what, what, what it's like to live this abiding life. We're, we're in constant connection, constant communion, constant awareness, constant dependence, constant reliance, constant trust in a loving relationship with a God who said, I'm going to do the best thing for you. I'm going to come and live in you. And I'll be your God. And I'll be with you wherever you go. And we began to look at two kings that Israel had, King Saul, and we begun to look at King David. And King Saul was one that, that Israel said, we want a king just like everybody else instead of God being their king. And they, he, God gave him Saul. And Saul turned out to be one who was very self-focused, wanted what he wanted. He had an eye problem. It was all about him. And eventually he disregarded what God had for him to do because he had all sorts of ideas of what was better and what was best. And he even, even, even told God, it's not my fault, it's their fault. And God said, you know what? I am sorry that I made Saul king, but I've got another one, a man that's after my own heart. And we learned that David was anointed by the prophet Samuel uh, in front of his family to affirm that God's call on his life was to be king, but he wasn't king right away. And years later, he ended up being anointed by his tribe, Judah, to be king over the tribe. And eventually, he became king over all Israel. And that's kind of where we left it last week. And we're going to pick this up, and we're going to see, because when we abide... 
Now, we were looking at all of the things that David did and how he relied on God, and, and he inquired of the Lord, and then the Lord would give him wisdom and understanding, and he would fulfill what God said, and he'd see victory after victory after victory. And yet, when we talk about abiding, it's not just about we get everything right, because none of us get everything right. There was only one that walked the earth that got everything right, and that was Jesus. Every one of us are prone to falls. We get tripped up. We fall down. We get off course. But does that mean we can't abide or we're not abiding? What it means is in our walk with God, in our abiding with God, we have moments in time where we revert back to what Saul was like. He did what he thought was best. And we do that, but we need to do it less and less and less. Because we're t depending more and more and more on God. We're listening. We're, we're tracking with God. We're trusting God. And, and so we've looked at David's life and we've seen how he did that. He was amazing in how he inquired of God all the time. And, and when they made him king over Israel, the Philistines heard about it and they came to confront and kill David, the new king. And David inquired of the Lord. And the Lord gave him guidance on how to approach this battle, and he did, and they won. And then there was another battle that came, and another battle. And, and he did everything the Lord had for him to do. But many times what happens in our lives is we get a few wins under our belt. We get these victories. And all of a sudden, we start to think, look what we did. And we become not God-confident, but self-confident. Self-confidence is a trap. God-confidence is a trust. And so David began to be confident in himself. And we're going to pick this up in chapter uh, 6 of 2 Samuel. But before we do, we're just going to pray. So if you'd bow your heads. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your presence here. Thank you, Father, for your word. Uh, you watch over your word to perform it. And we thank you, Father, that your word is life and health to those who find it. Thank you for healings occurring here today. Father, we thank you that your word is light. The entrance of your word brings light. And so, Father, we thank you for illumination that Holy Spirit will work to bring revelation to us, that rhema word that we need to hear. Uh, and, and that as we apply that rhema word, we'll experience transformation. But Lord, in all of this, I pray that every person here would hear what you have for them to hear, that specific thing that's the sword of the Spirit that will help them cut through the things the enemy's trying to do. Lord, we just thank you for your presence. We thank you for your plan. We thank you for your power. And we give you all the praise and the glory and the honor. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. So in 2 Samuel chapter 6, we, we catch up to David, and it says, David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000, and he and all his men went to Baal in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which was called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. So... The ark had been taken earlier, and the Philistines had taken it away in battle. And in that battle, 30,000 men, Israelites, lost their lives. So now David is set up. He's in Jerusalem. He wants to bring the ark back from where it was taken by the Philistines, and he decides to go and take it. And what he does is he takes 30,000 prime warriors, just like the ones that were lost in the battle when it was taken, and he goes to this place, and, and he finds the ark, and it says in verse 3, And they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it up from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzziah and Aho, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart. Now, we're, we're just going to stop right there. Because he... Hasn't inquired of God. He hasn't done anything. He's just had a longing in his heart to do something. But after all these victories, he's thinking, you know what? I want to get the ark, and I want to bring it back. Does that sound like a good idea? 
I know you're afraid to answer. Yeah, it sounds like a great idea. Where should the ark be? It should absolutely be in, in the capital of Israel, in Jerusalem. And so David has this idea, and he goes out, and, and he, he decides, you know, we're, we're going to get the number of men that were slain. They're going to go out and escort the ark back. And we're going to bring it back, and we're going to celebrate, and we're going to do all these things. And so they do. They do what, what they think is best. And they put the ark on a new cart because we know how we think of new. New's always better, right? Always looking for new. We've been programmed to look for new. There, there is uh, a planned obsolescence for almost every electronic piece of equipment you have. And if you don't want to get rid of it, you're going to have to because they don't make parts for it anymore. And so you have to bump up to something newer. But I want you to know, just because it new, is new doesn't make it, it better. The Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. And we get, we get sucked into that. New. I'll, I'll get new. I'll get new. I'll get new. And so they put the, the ark on a new cart, and they began to, to walk it out. Uh, and, and so what happens is, we read that it was on a hill, that the cart was coming down with the oxen pulling it, and all of a sudden the, the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God shifted. And the guy driving the cart that was with it, Uzzah, reached out to steady the Ark. And he died. Why would God do that? Well, because we, they could not... The Bible says sin cannot stand in the presence of God. When, they reached, when he reached out to touch the ark, flesh meant perfection and it couldn't stand. And so Uzzah died. David got really mad at God, got very afraid, and then he just put the ark aside at this man's house, another man's house, and, and left. Was so afraid he left. Went back to Jerusalem and then he heard that the house that he had left the Ark of the Covenant, Ark of God at, everybody in the house began to be blessed beyond anything they had ever experienced before. Because when the presence of God is in our lives and we allow him his way, the blessings come. And so David, David determined that God wasn't mad anymore. God was never mad. But how many of you know when we sin... The wages of sin is death. And David had sinned. And he didn't even know it. And so he should have. But what he did, he put it on the cart just like the Philistines did. But the Philistines weren't instructed by God how to move the ark. God had instructed Israel that they needed to use golden poles put through golden rings on the four corners of the ark. And the only people to carry it were the priests on their shoulders. But David either just did what he saw a foreign country do. Well, they're doing it. They did it that way and nothing happened. I'm going to do it that way. You and I need to know what God says. We can't just do what somebody else does just because it works for them. And so he came back with the poles, with the priests, and they carried it on their shoulders. And we, we picked this up. In verse 13, and again, today we're going to be jumping around in a lot of different scriptures because we've got a lot to cover. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fatted calf wearing a linen ephah. David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. And you may have heard about this, but they were sacrificing every six steps. And he's dancing before the Lord, celebrating and, and worshiping the Lord with all his might, with this ephod, which was a priestly garment that was sleeveless. It went under the robe, but it wasn't as long as a robe. And so he did this all the way back to Jerusalem. Okay, it wasn't a fast trip. And as he, he was coming into Jerusalem as these 30,000 men, as them, they were playing music and he was dancing, his wife saw him. And she got very upset. She detested him in her heart. And David addresses this and, and finds out that, that she's not happy. 
uh, about all this. And he tells her, I, I'm going to worship the Lord. No matter what it looks like, who thinks I'm foolish? Because I'm going to humble myself before the Lord because there's no one more important. And I'm paraphrasing, no one more important to me than the Lord. And his wife just was appalled by that and, and wasn't happy about it at all. But he did it. The ark was back. And uh, we're going to go to the next thing because all of a sudden there is a prophet, a new prophet, Samuel the prophet who anointed him first died. There's a new prophet, Nathan. And uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we pick this up in verse 8 and 9. It says, Nathan tells David, now then tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone. I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on the earth. So David has made this mistake in the ark, doing it the wrong way. He comes back because somehow he's found out. He's done his homework. He's got it right. But he, he assumed. After all the victories, he just thought he could go out and get it. Folks, that's one of the things that in our word for you today on Thursday, it talked about that after the greatest victories that we have, after the blessings come, we're real susceptible to getting tripped up, to falling into sin, to having pride rise up. And, and we don't know exactly why, but we know that he didn't do what he should have known to do. Finally, he came back and did it. And now he's got the ark back in Jerusalem and the prophet comes to tell David things that God wants him to be reminded of. And he tells him about the fact that, you know, David, God did all this for you. You didn't do this. God's just reminding him of what God's done. Listen, when we rehearse, when we remember what's been done in our lives, we can't take credit for it. And you may say, well, I did it. Yeah, but who gave you the life that you have? Who gave you the strength that you have? Who gave you the muscles, the ability, the brain, the opportunities? It's all God. And in all of this, we've got to be very faithful to give God the glory. Because if we don't, we start reading and listening to our own boasts in what we've done, and pride is sure to come. And so... Nathan reminds David of what God's done. You know, we're, we're, we're right at the corner of Thanksgiving. One day a year, we stop and we give thanks. But we as Christians ought to give thanks every day. Because we only know a little bit of what God's doing. God's doing so much more than we have any idea of. And we should be giving thanks. And so in this, God reminds him of these things. And... Uh, tells him that he is going to make his name great. Now, that's wonderful, but it's also a huge challenge. The more notoriety, the more people are coming after you and, and want you and think you're awesome, the easier it is to get puffed up with pride and to rely on ourselves and think we did something that we need, we need desperately to give God credit for. But in this moment, in, in this same chapter, in verse 18, 22, and 26, we're going to look at, the king went and sat before the Lord and prayed. Do we have 18, John? There we go. Then the king went in and sat before the Lord and prayed. Who am I, O sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? So he is, he's aware that this is God's doing. In verse 22, he goes on to say, How great are you, O sovereign Lord? There is none like you. We have never even heard of another God like you. All of this is true. And David's, David's recognized that this is all about who God is. And then 26, David says this, And may your name be honored forever, so that everyone will say the Lord of heaven's armies is God over Israel. And may the house of your servant David continue before you forever. 
So there's, there's a real humility that's, that's been reinstated. In David, he's, he's acknowledged after hearing from the prophet that God has done all this. He acknowledges it, and he's back on track. Good for David. You know, once we get off track, we don't have to stay off track. That's where we need to repent. We need to recognize that we've gotten off track, turn around. That's what repentance is, turning around, turning back to God to follow with God. Because it's easy. It's easy in the world that we live in today to get off track. There are so many things that are pulling at us. And we don't even know it. It's just like the air pressure that's on you right now or the speed that we're moving on the earth. And the earth is moving in the solar system. We have no sense of that, and yet it's still at work. We have no sense of the pull of the enemy, the pull of the world, the pull of our own selfishness, but it's still at work. And that's why we have to be very mindful that every good and perfect gift that we have has come from the Lord. And we need to give Him thanks. And even if we don't see it, you know, the moment we stop and we say, well, I don't have anything to thank God for, just recognize the words that you just spoke, he gave you the breath to be able to do it. There's always things for us to thank God for. And so what God has said to David, it comes to pass in chapter 8 of 2 Samuel, verse 13, it says this, and David became famous, famous. Isn't that what a lot of people want today? They want their fame. Isn't that why they're doing what they're doing on TikTok and, and all these other electronic platforms? They want multitudes to like them. We have never existed in a time where more people are vying for everybody's attention. Absolute strangers. We want people to like us. Listen, this is a newsflash. This is revelation. Not everybody's going to like you. And I know they're dumb for not liking you, but... And even if they do, why do you think it's going to be different for us than it was for Jesus? The same people that were celebrating Jesus coming in on the Palm Sunday road in a few days shouted in the crowd, crucify him, crucify him. Because the love of the world is transactional. It's conditional. It's only there if you give them what they want. And whatever you give them to get them, you're going to have to keep doing them to keep them. And so we need, we need to make the Lord our priority. And, and David was doing that. And God saw fit to make him known throughout the land. And it says that David became famous after he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Remember when he struck down Goliath? He beat Goliath and, and the women of that day were singing the song, Saul has slayed his thousands, David his 10,000. He knocked down one man. He was a big man, but one man. Now, he and the army have slain 18,000. What do you think they're singing now? Easy to get a big head. But that big head is going to just topple us. Because as much as David and the army did it, it was only with God. And just like us, every victory comes from the Lord. And so... Again, it's easy to have this pride inflate, and it was working in David. And not just that there were more, more battles that were going on, and we're not going to read these, but you need to go back and, and look at it and see what happened. There were, there were three major battles that God gave David and Israel the victory in. And so he comes back from that, and we pick this up in chapter 11, and this is going to be a really familiar story. It's one of the most prominent in the Bible. <clears throat> it says in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israel army. 
They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Reba. But David, what? Remained in Jerusalem. So, we see right here that as a king, he was supposed to go out to war. God had for David to lead Israel, but was David doing what God had for him to do? He's supposed to lead Israel. He's supposed to be the man in the front. He is supposed to be out there at the battlefield. He is the commander-in-chief. And kings go out to war, and this was the time kings were supposed to go out to war, and David doesn't. Just thinks, you know what, I'm going to send Joab. I'll send all my best men and all the army of Israel, but I'm going to stay home. Folks, we've got to be very aware that when we detour off the path and the plan that God has for us, we are the first step is out of God's will into sin. And the wages of sin? Death. None of us want death. David didn't want it. But he remained in Jerusalem. Then it goes on to say, one evening David got up from his bed, walked around the roof uh, of the palace, from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, now he hasn't gone anywhere, but he says, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And David sent a messenger to get her, and she came to him. So we've got David not going out when he should have gone out. He's out on the rooftop, which he, it's fine for him to do, but he's in the wrong place. So something could bad could happen that is not what God wants. And he sees a woman bathing. But he just doesn't look. He stares. You know how we know that? Because you, if you're surveying things out there, you can see somebody bathing. But to know whether they're beautiful or not, you got to stare. He should have turned away. Another choice he made that he knew was wrong. And then, then he inquires, I, I, I need some, somebody to find out who she is. And before even going, he hears that so-and-so's daughter, the wife of Uriah, should have cut it off right there. But he sends for her. He sends for her. And she came to him. Go ahead, John. No. Oh, that's right. Sorry. She came to him and she slept with him. And then she later on tells him, I, I, I'm pregnant. And then David makes a number of choices and we're not going to look at them, but but what is going to happen is we're going to see a number of choices that David makes that are again wrong. He finds out that she's pregnant. He calls for her husband, Uriah, out in the battlefield to come back. He talks to Uriah and says, how's the battle going? Uriah says, it's going well, king. And he says, well, that's great. Thanks for coming. Uh, go down and, and take the evening off. Spend time with your wife. Uriah is a very good man, and he doesn't go down to his house to lay with his wife because David's expecting him to do that so that he can cover up his sin. And Uriah might think this is his child. But Uriah sleeps at the door of, of at the door where all the other servants of the king are sleeping. He doesn't go down to his house. The next morning, David finds out Uriah hasn't gone down to his house. He calls Uriah in. And he starts talking to Uriah, and he, he says, you know, stay one more day, and, uh, and then you can go back. And he, he feeds Uriah, and he gets him drunk, thinking if he's drunk, he's going to go back to his house. But Uriah, again, as, as an honorable man, says, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to go go to my house when everybody else is in battle dealing with all these hardships. And so he sleeps again with the servants by the door. David finds out the next day that Uriah hasn't gone home. 
He calls him again. He says, okay, uh, I'm going to send you back to the battle. I want you to take this letter. David has written a letter to Joab, the head of the commander of the armies out there, and he tells Joab, place Uriah in the fiercest fighting. When it's really intense, pull all the troops back from him. Joab's got a, a, a command from the king, and he does it. Uriah's placed in the hottest battle. They pull back. Uriah dies, along with other Israelites. And Bathsheba finds out that her husband has died. She mourns. And David takes her as his wife. It says Bathsheba heard about her husband Uriah had died. She mourned for him. In her time of sadness, David sent servants. After her time of sadness, David sent servants to bring her to his house. And she became David's wife and gave birth to, it should be his son. But the Lord did not like what David had done. Again, we have, we have 12 different things that started with him not being where he should have been. Because he just decided he was going to do what he was going to do. This is a real departure from who David was. David was always inquiring of the Lord. David was always looking for God's guidance. At this point, he was just calling his own shots. Not much different than Saul. But we're going to find out David was very different than Saul. Saul cared about himself. David indulged himself. He, he gave in to the flesh, as we all do. But... David is remembered as a man after God's own heart in Acts chapter 13. Well, how could he be a man after God's own heart when he's done all this stuff? The same way you and I can be. We do things. We get tripped up. We fall down. But if we are people that abide, people that value God more than anything else, God will help us get back on track. But we've got to want it too. And so this has all happened, and in chapter 12, in verse 9, Nathan comes to confront God, wakes Nathan up, the prophet, and he tells Nathan what's happened and what he needs to tell David. Nathan comes, and, and he speaks to David, King David. Now, how many of you know holding a king accountable could cost you your life, right? Right? And yet he's, Nathan is going to do what God, the Lord said. And so he goes to him and he says, why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Then David said, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, we have this because what happened with Saul? When Saul was confronted about the sin of not obeying the word of the Lord, Saul said, I obeyed. Remember that? Do you remember? And, and when he said, I've obeyed, but the people did this. And then what did Saul want? When, when did Saul ever say, you know what, I, I've sinned, and, and I don't know. He did not repent. He was sorry for getting caught. He was sorry for what was being pointed out. But what he wanted, he told Samuel, Samuel, come with me when we go back so that the people will see you and me together. It'll look like everything's all right. Samuel said, I'm not going to do it. Because all he wanted was the people to see him in a good light. David has right here owned a sin. I have sinned against the Lord. You know, when we sin, and, and many places don't talk about sin because it makes us all uncomfortable. You know why? Because we all sin. We're saved. We are not sinners, but we save people sin. And when we sin, we need to acknowledge it. I did wrong. I departed from you, Lord. The Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin to God, 
He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But we have to confess it. We need to go to God. Well, I thought he forgave all sins. He has. But you and I still have to own our sins so that we can acknowledge what we've done and turn away and back to God. Repent. And God will cleanse us. And David does this. But we don't see until we go to a psalm that David wrote how this impacted him. So in Psalm 51, this is a psalm that David wrote when Nathan had uh, come to him and, and told him and confronted him about his sin with Bathsheba and killing Uriah. And David says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgression. Do you notice he owns this? He owned it before. I have sinned. Not just sorry. Because many times we're just sorry because of what's happening, because of what we did. But if we're really owning it, we have to say, I have sinned, Lord. I ask you to forgive me. Blot out my transgression." Nobody else made me do this. Every time you and I sin, the bottom line is, I choose it, you choose it. There was a show years and years ago, the Flip Wilson show. You may have never heard of it because you aren't old enough, but he had a line he'd say all the time, the devil made me do it. You know what? The devil doesn't make any one of us save people do anything. He tempts us, but guess what? Jesus was tempted in all manner like we are, but he was without sin because he chose to abide in the Father, chose to do what the Father wanted, not what they want, what he wanted. And that's where we have to own. Every time I sin, every time we sin, it's because we choose to go after the temptation instead of in that moment of decision, the Bible talks about the valley of decision, we go after God. We acknowledge, God, I am being tempted. I, I, I need your help. And the Bible says in our weakness, his strength is made full. Why? Because when we acknowledge, when we recognize God's right there with us, God, I am struggling with this, help me. That is the voice of humility, not the voice of pride. And God says, I'll give grace to the humble. God will offer us grace to be able to turn away. Now, we still have to turn. He's not going to move us, but he's going to give us what we need to be able, in that moment we're submitting, like James says, submit yourself to God and then resist the devil and he'll flee. When I'm submitting to God, I'm abiding in God. And the enemy's going to be run off. But guess what? He'll return. He always comes back to tempt. That's what he does until the end of his time. So in Psalm 51, uh, we start out in verse 1, and, and he says, Blot out my transgressions. Have mercy on me. God, the Bible says God shows mercy to a thousand generations. That means... He never runs out of mercy, but we got to come to him. And then it says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He's owning it before God. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done evil in your sight. For David to acknowledge what he's done, it's the first step on returning back to God. Then in verse 6 and 7, it says, you want me to be completely loyal, so put true wisdom deep inside me. What is true wisdom? Where do we find truth? The Bible tells us the only place we can be sure that we'll find truth all the time is his word. And so, put truth deep inside me. Isn't that what the psalmist said? I hide your word in my heart that I won't sin against you. 
Because what happens is when we begin to read the Word, study the Word, memorize the Word, meditate on the Word, we begin to digest the Word, we begin to put it into our lives, then all of a sudden when that temptation comes, Holy Spirit is able to remind us that's not God. That's not going to bring life. And that word is going to be able to empower us and impart to us what we need. If we love God, if we're abiding with God, if we've made God a priority over everyone and anyone and everything, then we're going to continue to choose God. We're going to decrease that he would increase. Then he says, remove my sin and make me pure. Now, when something is pure, if gold is pure, how much gold is there? Yeah, we can't get it perfect, but it's supposed to be absolutely, completely, undivided, pure gold. And this is what he's saying. Help my heart not be divided. Help me to become a person that wants you your way, your will, more than anyone or anything else. Help me to be undivided. And wash me until I'm whiter than what? See, even the Bible talks about it. Yeah, wash me so I'm whiter than snow. There's nothing that God longs to do more than washing us and making us pure and whiter than snow. He, he desires that. And we have to desire it too. Then that, that word pure means undivided, also means uncontaminated and focused and faithful. Then in verse 10 and 13, through 13, it says this. This is David crying out after he's been confronted. He's not, not making excuses, not rationalizing, not justifying. He is saying, create me a clean heart. Renew a steadfast spirit in me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners will be converted to you. So he starts out, create me a clean heart. This purity, God, restore my purity. You know, when we're restored by God, when we're forgiven by God, every time we are reminded of what we did, that we went to God and confessed our sin and, and received forgiveness for it, that reminder of your sin that you have confessed and you've been forgiven is the work of the enemy every time because God does not remind you of your sin because he has forgiven it. He removes your sin as far as the east is from the west. And so in that moment, you have to rise up. I need to rise up. We need to rise up and we need to recognize that's the voice of the enemy. I am not listening to that. He's a liar. And he is. He's telling you about your sin that God doesn't remember anymore. So why should you? Why should you? The only purpose in being reminded of sin is to cause us to have questions about whether we're worthy of God taking care of us. And it's not based on that anyways. God loved us when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. So our sin doesn't stop God's love. But it does hinder what God can do because until we turn from sin, sin is running our lives and ruining our lives. So he says, don't cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Of all the things he could ask not to be taken from him, this is what he asked for. This is where we see his desire is for God. He could have said, don't take the kingdom don't take the fame, don't take the riches, don't take the popularity, don't take my family, don't take this, don't take that. Long list. But what he says is, don't take your presence from me. Don't take 
your spirit for me. This clearly shows why David was a man after God's own heart. Because what he wanted more than anything, what he wanted more than anyone was God. He was a person that abided. God was the priority. And yet, David wasn't perfect. You and I can fall down. Now, I'm not saying go out and fall down all you want and then go take care of me. All right? But recognize when you get tripped up, for the Bible says, though a righteous man falls seven times. It doesn't say a sin-filled man. It says a righteous man, one that's in right standing with God. Though he falls seven times, he arises. Why does he arise? Because he comes out of that back to God. David's saying, don't cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Then he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with your generous hand. One of the things that he lost because of the sin, we lose because of sin in our lives, we lose the joy of the Lord. The joy and the peace of God are the two things that leave so quickly when we get into sin. And the joy of the Lord is our strength. It strengthens us. And the peace of God stabilizes us. So our strength and stability are removed immediately when we sin because we're unsure, we're unstable, we're uncertain. And he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Then, then after, after he has God's restoration, and we all can have God's restoration, if we choose to recognize and own what we've done that has departed from God and want to go back on and track with God, God restores us. And then, the Bible says, he said, I will teach transgressors your way. He's going to be able to teach people that get off track the way to get back on track. How is that? Because when we're dealing with people that are choosing sin, I almost said making mistakes, but it's not. It's a sin. Choosing sin intentionally and getting off track, many times they don't feel like they can come back to God. But we, we can say to them, listen, I want you to know, God's waiting for you with open arms. Turn and run to him. Repent, turn out of your sin, run to him. Well, I don't know if he'll have me. I'm going to tell you he will. Well, how do you know? Well, let me tell you what I did. And then we share. And many times we share the, the testimony and it's all this bad stuff. And at the end we tack on and God turned it around. We need to make it's small as far as not going into great detail about what we've experienced, but we have fallen into sin. And maybe, maybe like me, it's the sin of alcoholism or the sin of pornography. But I don't tell you all the details of that. I'll tell you, this is what I got caught up in, I got tripped up in. I got controlled by for years, and it damaged me, and it damaged my family. It damaged my witness to other people. But I will tell you that God restored me as I owned it, as I chose to hate the sin and love God more than the sin. Hate what the sin was doing to other people and love people more than I love the sin. And God brought people into my life that loved me and held me accountable and prayed for me and asked me the hard questions. And God restored me. And I didn't do it on my own. And none of us do it on our own. All of us don't want anybody knowing about our sin. But there is a necessity of us having other people who are trustworthy. Don't go out and tell everybody. But you need to tell some trusted people that you know are going to be faithful to pray for you. To remind you of God's word to stand with you and be available to you, to restore you, to keep pointing you back to God, keep reminding you, stay on track with God. I'll teach transgressors your way. 
and sinners will be converted to you. Why? Because they're going to see someone who has fallen, who has made bad choices, who has sinned, and see the restoration of God and the joy and the peace that fills our lives because we're choosing to abide like David did, not like Saul. I'd like every head bowed and every eye closed. God, God so loves every human being, no matter what their, their place in life is, what, what they're dealing with, that He sent His only begotten Son. That if we would believe on Him, if we would trust in Him, if we would recognize who Jesus is, the Son of God, who came to earth, to bring forgiveness and restoration as he died on the cross to a vibrant, abiding relationship with Almighty God. But we have to come to that place of saying, God, I need you in my life. And we recognize Jesus as the Messiah, the Savior, we repent, we turn out of running our own lives and, and running to sin. And we reach out to God to receive all that He has. And if you're here today and you have never received Jesus as your Lord, you've never repented of your sin and received Christ as your Lord, today I want to pray with you. And if that's you, I want you to just raise your hand right now. Just lift it up, nobody looking. I just, I, it just, Holy Spirit keeps pulling up my heart that there is somebody here. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to wait and wait and wait and try and uh, convince you you need to raise your hand, but I am going to invite you to pray. And I'm going to invite everybody to pray today. So let's pray this prayer from our heart, acknowledging our sin and receiving Christ as our Savior. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your son Jesus who came to earth and lived a sinless life, died on the cross for my sins, and was raised glorious and victorious to your right hand in heaven. Today, Lord Jesus, I ask you to come into my life. Be Lord of my life, my Savior, my Messiah. I repent of my sin. I turn to you to trust in you, to guide me, to govern me, to guard me. From this day forward, I am yours. You are mine. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. Now, if you are the one that has never done that, don't be anonymous. You've just gotten a whole new family, and, and we want to celebrate with you. Let somebody know before you leave here that, that you are now part of the family of God, and we are going to rejoice in that, and we're also going to be available to be whatever help we can be. If you want to see me or Pastor Gabe or... Uh, anybody here, just, just let us know before you leave so we can be praying for you. Now, again, we're going to do something that we've started to do, and it's just something that God keeps putting on my heart. I want you to close your eyes. We're doing what is very difficult in our society with our, our schedules and the speed of light is just stop and be still before God. In the Psalms, it's Selah, pause and reflect. But right now, just ask God to show you what part was for you or parts were for you that, that you need to take note of. You need to begin to intentionally incorporate them in your life and adjust your life so that the 
transformational power of God, of his word, of his spirit, would be able to take you from glory to glory. So just listen. Now, Heavenly Father, we know that your word says, as your sheep, we're going to know your voice. We may never hear your voice, but we know when you, you make us aware of things. It's always in line with your word. And so, Father, those things that you have impressed on our hearts, our minds, that we need to be intentional about, help us. Help us to work and walk those things out this week as we walk with you. And we thank you that you take us from glory to glory. And we give you the glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? I have a couple of things I just want to share with you to be praying. You know, we, we all go through various things and they're challenging, but when we lose a loved one, it becomes really challenging. 